opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on issues of 21st century legalized slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Elia, Black Talk Media Project founders Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the May 24th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, our last broadcast before we enter our fifth anniversary month here at the Black Talk Radio Network. Together, we've accomplished great things with very few resources alongside many dedicated souls, and there is still much work left to do. On this date in history, May 24th, 1861, General Benjamin Butler declared slaves to be contrabands of war. The stinking Lincoln administration quickly acquiesced to Butler's policy and Congress gave it the force of law in early August through the Confiscation Act of 1861. Our list of potential stories include, for the fifth year in a row, the prison and security company G4S is listed as the largest private employer on the entire continent of Africa. Also, Carl Oliver, a GOP state representative and Mississippi lawmaker, declared publicly that Louisiana leaders who supported the recent removal of four Confederate monuments should be lynched. The mayor of New Orleans gave an impassioned speech on why those idols should be taken down. So far this year, 367 people have been fatally shot by police in America. This time last year, it was 366. We hear very little about the cases, as if a memo went out from mainstream media to ignore all such news reports. In a report that should be listed under Things Black People Done Already Told You, Sheriff Tom Dart says Chicago's Cook County Jail, with a population of about 7,500 and an estimated 70,000 men and women passing through its jail cells each year, has become a dumping ground for the poor and mentally ill. Baltimore's corrupt policing destroyed Ivan Potts' life. That's what the headline said. We wanted to look a little deeper at his story because it perfectly accents our argument that once an officer is found to be corrupt or guilty of crimes, all of their cases 
should be reviewed to see what innocents have suffered at their hands and deserves their freedom and justice. Stephen from Django was in the news again. Uh, I, mean, I mean, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Beauregard Clark will try and update to you as to why he's in the news again. Our abolitionist in profile will be provided by Scotty Reed. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Sean Thomas, who was released just yesterday after serving 24 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And in our new segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will be remembering the Haitian Revolution, 1791. Got a question or a comment? You can call us toll-free at 866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Parkers. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, what's up, Max? How are you tonight? I'm pretty good, man. You sound a little distant, though. Is that better? Uh, somewhat, is, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah a little better? bit better. I just Not need, optimal, but it sounds better. Yeah, I need to turn up the uh, the volume on, on my microphone. I'm doing okay, Max. Uh, you know, just uh, staying on the propaganda, propaganda grind. So you know what I do. You know what my days are like. <laughs> and I'm just yeah, tripping, yeah. man. You stay busy, brother. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> tripping on how good, how great uh, Jim Crow was, man. You know, according how, to some people. <laughs> it was oh. a wonderful time for black folks. So yeah. I'm tripping, Max. I'm over here tripping. When America was great, huh? <laughs> yeah, they sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, make America great again. Take us mm-hmm. back to Jim Crow. Black folks had everything they needed during Jim Crow. So, yeah, we long for those days. I had a beautiful experience uh, just yesterday, Scotty. I got to speak to a group of seventh graders out at um, the W.A. Perry Middle School, and it's in the Richland County School District 1 in South Carolina. And this was a primarily all-black school. So it was all-black students that I'm speaking to, as well as the educators. I think I saw maybe two people who weren't people of color in the entire school at the time, which, you know, in South Carolina, segregation, it seems like, right? But nonetheless, uh, it was a really moving experience for everybody involved, very inspiring. There's a video available, and I'll put it on through Abolitionist Radio, but, you know, people would be surprised at how intelligent these 12, 13, 14 years old are, how much they already know, how much they care, how committed they are to seeing change, and, and you know, it's just amazing. So we interacted for about an hour in several classes, and then I gave a lecture, an interactive lecture, and uh, it was beautiful, man. That's good. That's good. Um, do want to give a shout out to the listeners, and of course to Johanan, uh, the actionist that's MIA right now because he holding things down on the home front. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm sure he'll be back as soon as possible. You know, Scotty, there's one other thing that I just want to mention this weekend. Uh, the Saturday coming, I will be for the first time in 15 years uh, having my son. That me and him will be meeting, you know, I, you know, on a free stance, not in a prison, but you know he's free now. So I'll be seeing him for the first time since he got out of prison this Saturday. And uh, I'll also have on the other side of me at a family reunion my daughter who was just cleared of cancer just last week. So that's going to be for me. It's going to be just a moving, another moving experience. It's beautiful to know that those two who weren't supposed to make it survived and they'll be together on Saturday. 
That's cool. That's cool, Max. So I'm ready to jump into some of these stories. Uh, do we got a guest tonight or no? Well, I have someone who may be calling in, Julia Dawson, who arranged for the school presentation yesterday, since she may call in today. So uh, it'll likely be from an 803 number. Um, another one other than mine, I'll check my phone just to make sure that I got the first three digits here. It's uh, first 803-447. So if you see that number, uh, if Julia, if you're on the line, when you're ready to talk, just press star star. There was one other thing I want to mention, Scotty. It's kind of a historic event about to occur. You and I are going to get together and talk about slavery and human trafficking at a public location coming up uh, on June 18th, Father's Day. A uh, great day for us to be doing something like that. And we'll be talking at an event here in South Carolina arranged by David Coma, who's running for Congress in District 5 as an abolitionist, and Greg Jacot. Looking forward to that. You, me, tribal, together. And uh, you mentioned just the last time we talked something about a fundraiser, too, as well, Scotty, about getting to Washington for the trip, uh, the Millions for Prisoners March on Washington. Scotty Reed, you there? Am I the one that's lost to the air, or is it you? Oh, I'm sorry, Max. I was <laughs> I had myself muted. My my apologies. Uh, I'm trying to multitask. Um, uh huh. But um, yeah. Um, need to talk to Johan and to see if first he can get off work to be able to attend. I'm gonna have to let people know uh, how many days that what days I'm gonna be down. Because there's going to be some people who don't know how to broadcast their own program that they're not going to be able to broadcast because I'm going to be with you and uh, on our way to Washington, D.C. So before we put together a fundraiser for for that uh, effort, um, first, you know, we just got to nail some things down and, and get a ballpark figure. Word, word, man. Well, those that covers everything that I wanted to talk about in the, uh, in the, uh, the break that wasn't listed on the thing. Just some personal stuff that's going on with Black Talk Radio, New Abolitionist Radio, myself, and Scotty Reed. Uh, we're, we're trying our best to make a difference in this world and in our communities using what talents we have. You know, we uh, do have some hosts, the host of Cold Breakers. They live in the D.C. area, and they asked me last night if I was going to come up, and I told them, you know, me and Max um, and possibly Johan and plan to travel there for the human rights, uh, millions for human rights march, and they said they want to meet up with us. So uh, that'll be good as well. To just imagining that image of the three of us, along with Crystal Roundtree and many of the others who have led this fight, coming together in D.C. and demanding this change in the status quo of slavery and human trafficking. Man, that's, I, I couldn't have imagined it five years ago, this moment. It's just momentous, I would think, you know? A lot of things that we started out five years ago, just about to the day, on the June 13th will be our anniversary, uh, we have seen some amazing changes over this time, amazing changes. Yes. Far surpassing what we suspected, truly. Yeah, but some setbacks as well with that private prison. Um, I mean, that was like a, a cruel tease job that Obama did to us. 
you know, announce a couple of months before the end of his administration. Oh, we're going to quit using private prisons. The markets respond, private prison stocks drop. But then they just had just enough time to hang on till the November election and Donald Trump's election, who promised to expand private prisons and their stocks rebounded. That was that was like a cruel, cruel experience, man. But it just also lets you know that it can be done. They are not invincible. They are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. You're right, Scotty. And that's what I was looking at. I, I see the whole thing as a victory because in the way you said, like a cruel tease, um, Senator, uh, what's his freaking name? Escape my moment at, at my mind at the moment. The one that we lobbied a couple years ago, Senator Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, right? He did the same thing with the Justice is Not for Sale Act. I mean, he introduced it, he made a big hoopla on it, he talked about it before it came out, and then he totally forgot it after it came out. Never mentioned it again. You know what I mean? It was just like a bone they threw to us. But for me, the victory was in, they were talking about it. They were forced to uh, address the issue. And, you know, that's something that had not been occurring at all. So for me, that was the victory. And then the real victory was August 18th of 2016 when we saw those stocks go down to me that proved that this beast can bleed and if it can bleed it can die right right so yeah man and speaking of this beast I guess that's the first story that uh, I pulled up unless you had something else you wanted to cover first um, no Max yeah. alright and once again Julia if you call in just press star star on your phone and that will unmute you so we know that you're there and uh glad to hear from you. In any case, the first thing that comes up is this G4S, uh, Africa wins top employer status for fifth year. Um, amazing, man. And this was 2016, so uh, people weren't aware of this then. So I guess they're going into the sixth year now as the largest employer on the entire continent of Africa. And that's just kind of sad when we think that a, a prison company that huge, that big, the largest private employer and it's celebratory. It's something we should say yay and throw our thumbs up because a prison employs more people than any other company on the entire continent. And G4S for those that don't know is a subsidiary of the GEO group. When we tell you in the last 45 years these companies have grown to global proportions we're underestimating it because they are really uh, huge powers and uh, involving the entire globe, where they've taken over the entire countries, for instance. I know we just heard recently that in Turkey, they're about to buy or build 174 new prisons to house 100,000 dissidents. And that's what the newspaper there in Turkey said, literally, 100,000 dissidents. So this model's really being expanded. I read a little bit from this article, but most of it kind of peed me off just hearing it. G4S is the only security company in Africa awarded the standard, which it again received for 13 countries in 2017, following a rigorous audit process by the top employers institute. G4S Africa regional president Mel Brooks said, I believe that G4S's solid people practices, effective training programs, a strong drive towards upskilling and developing its people underpins this international recognition and clearly sets us apart from our competitors. Our business is defined by high standards and expertise of our people and our customers rely on us to provide high quality screened effective employees employees to secure their assets and business activities. 
this the areas examined were talent strategy, workforce planning, onboard uh, onboarding, learning and development, performance management, leadership development, career and success management, compensation and benefits and cultures. The 13 countries to achieve certification were Botswana, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ghana, Kenya, Malawi, Morocco, uh, Mozambique, Nam uh, Namit. I'm chopping these words up, so forgive me, please. I had never really had to say a couple of them before. Namibia, Nigeria, South Africa, and Zambia. That compares with nine countries in 2013. And here's the kicker. G4S Africa employs 119,000 people across 29 countries, and it provides the means and opportunities for our employees to make the most of their careers. There you have it, Scotty. <laughs> I mean, like, wow, dude. 29 countries, 119,000 people, a prison company with its own standing army of 8,000 men. And that's just a subsidiary of another company called the Geo Group based right here in the United States. Well, Max, we tried to tell people um, on this program that slavery is a global problem. It's a global institution. These are multinational companies. Doesn't matter if they're based in the United States or the UK. And they're on the continent. I mean, even the Drug Enforcement Administration of the United States has an office in Africa. And is in Africa so-called fighting a drug war. Okay? So th these are these this beast has global tentacles. So I don't care. You might be able to find some island that's isolated somewhere and, and you know, they just haven't gotten there yet. Or, you know, there may be some isolated places where, you know, you, your village doesn't get much visitors or whatnot. But for the most part, there's no place you're going to go that you don't fall up under their jurisdiction because they have their their partners, their regional partners, whether that's the president of these African nations, whether that's the leaders of Australia, uh, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to matter. Okay, so this is a global fight. Abolitionism cannot be confined to just the United States. It is indeed a global movement. But we who are here in the United States are in the belly of the beast. And Max, I found out. Um, yes. One of my old close army buddies, man, from back in the day, uh, we reconnected through Facebook, and I found out that he worked for G4S, man. So I ain't man. had a chance to have that conversation with him. I, I don't know exactly what he's doing for G4S, but that's what's on his Facebook profile that that's his employer. So I was kind of I was kind of disappointed to see that, but. I'll be talking to him about abolitionism. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought I saw a moment ago that uh, Julia was on the line. I saw her number, but I just saw it vanish. I think she might have lost her connection. Um, no, yes, there it is. That's Max. it. There you are. I can hear you. <laughs> hey, Julia, yes, welcome hi. to the Abolitionist Radio. Hi, Scotty. Welcome, welcome. Hi. Okay. I, I'm uh, sorry. I got confused on the board. Uh, we got two callers. We have Julia and we have Brother Braggs. Um, Max, you want to go with Brother Braggs first? I'm sure he just had a quick comment. 
Oh, sure. Just hold on. Uh, no, 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 no. Proper introduction. Brother Bragg, if you don't mind, go ahead and state your comment or question, and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Hey, guys, I was just going to open the line. Oh, we can't hear you, brother. That's back in the chat. Hold, hold up. Let me mute him and unmute him um, and try it again. Uh, try it again, Brother Braggs. All right. I was, saying, I was moving around. I probably hit the switch on my mic. I'm sorry about that. I was listening to the show. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, Brother Braggs. Anytime you want to chime in, you know what to do. Thank you. Word. Yes, well, let me give a quick introduction here for uh, Judy Dawson, an educator out of South Carolina in the Richmond One County uh, School District and working out of uh, the uh, school that we visited yesterday. I met her, it's serendipity, it really is, it's serendipity. I met her when we were at, uh, together, not together, but separately at an event with Brian Stevenson from the uh, Equal Justice Initiative was giving his discussion about uh, the legacies of slavery and you've seen the video Scotty where from the audience I questioned about his commitment to ending real slavery not the legacy of but real slavery and what he thought of uh, whether or not he supported an abolitionist movement which he confirmed both of on that video anyway that was where she first heard of me and new abolitionist radio we met afterwards became quick friends and she said you know Max I'm going to bring you to talk to my students I'm, I'm going to make it happen and then a few months later I get a call a couple of months later, uh, she calls me. She says, I know it's the last minute, Max, but can we do this? And I was like, yes, let's make this happen. And it turned out to be a beautiful event. So welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Julia. Thank you, Max. And thank you and Tribal and Scotty for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Please uh, tell us your thoughts and, and everything, too. I'm sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to. My bad. No, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to Julia and welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have many thoughts. I mean, my mind um, automatically goes to the actions. You know, you were sharing yesterday with the children that um, what it means to be an actionist, and I have a, a lot of um, quotes in, in my current <laughs> apartment. And one of them is actions speak louder than words. And so I'm a poet in addition to being a teacher and very aware of the power of the word and careful with the word, um, but also just even more want, you know, my actions and my fellow human beings' actions to be the biggest um, legacy that I leave. And so when, when we talk about companies like, you know, GEO and corporations, um, Corrections Corporations of America, I immediately think of, well, where do the people that profit from those companies, where do they live here in the Southeast? And, you know, I started to do research before the school year began um, around that. And I know that Charlotte is a hub for, I think, CCA, um, you know, it being a banking center. And so my mind immediately goes to putting faces to names. You know, some of how these corporations are able to do what they do is to sort of pretend and act in ways where they, it's like they're anonymous in some ways, or the whole idea of being too big to fail, but we know that's not true. 
there are people who sit in offices who make decisions um, who go to church, you know, who go to grocery stores. And so, um, you know, one thing that I've been meditating on is what does it mean to be um, a modern-day abolitionist? And then for me myself as a white Southern woman, what does it mean to be, um, you know, a white person confronting something that my ancestors and relatives created and um, still participate in? Um, what does it mean to confront that from where I am, you know, in, in my experience on this planet? And so, um, yes, you know, as you're talking about how these systems work, I think of what it means to confront them, you know, unflinchingly. So that's where my heart is. Mm, indeed, indeed. I, I think that uh, the last question that you had there, the second, uh, I could say that it puts you on the right side of history and makes you a righteous person. Um, um, I would also I don't think it, um, it say, yeah, I'm sorry. I will also say to, to Julia's point about putting names and faces uh, to these corporate officers. That's something that we tried to do over the years. Uh, admittedly, we could do a better job at that, but we try to make sure people know who George Zoli is, the CEO of the GO Group. Uh, um, and some of the other names are escaping me right now because we would listen to their earnings calls, their, their quarterly earnings calls, so they could brag about, you know, listening to them bragging about there are new opportunities in slavery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things we found out, unfortunately, was um, the famed civil rights activist and lawyer, um, uh, Thurgood Marshall Sr., which later became a Supreme Court justice. Well, his son sits on the board of Core Civic, formerly known as um, a Correction Corporation of America. And he wasn't the only non-white person that are on these boards. And we looked at their entire boards. And so I think that is important, Julia, that we put their faces and names out there. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, and yesterday... Thank you. I had to do this. Oh, I, I was, I was going to say, yesterday, one of my favorite things was the interaction of the, the, the young men and women there and their awareness already of circumstances. But the surprise on their faces when the one thing that they had been learning uh, to this date or I thought they knew turned out to be wrong. When I said, you know, uh, who knows about the 13th Amendment and the several people knew about it, which was beautiful. And then I asked what they based their freedom on and they told me that was the 13th Amendment. I said, what the 13th Amendment do? And they said, free the slaves. And I was like, nope. Somebody done lied to you. <laughs> and then I told them about the exception clause. Simply by pulling it up on my phone, it's right there. It's only 47 words long. And that broke the ice for them that there might be some things that they weren't aware of, I believe. And they became very interactive after that. For me, uh, just, you know, it was a beautiful thing to see the kids want to know more and be able to try to give them some knowledge that might prevent them from doing things they normally wouldn't, would have done in order to preserve their freedom in their life. Absolutely, and being around this age group, you know, middle school, I'm a second-year teacher, so I did a lot of things before I became a teacher, but, and so I'm not a young person, I'm 36, but I'm definitely a young teacher, 
And so, you know, I came to Perry because of the mentors that are there. The um, one, you know, who you met, who I hope um, the interaction with Perry and with those teachers and you and the children, um, I pray that it continues, you know, many more times beyond tomorrow. But one thing that I'm learning being with 12 to 14-year-olds is how impressionable they are. And that's a beautiful thing in terms of the open-mindedness and the um, real liberation of thought. It also is a reminder of how careful we have to be as adults and how easy it is for them to be brainwashed, for their, pre- for their youth and their preciousness to be used to fulfill um, evil deeds you know, the deeds of corporations like um, these corporations that rob people of life and freedom um, just to make some money. Um, So it's something that I really try not to forget how sacred it is to be with young people, to be an adult with young people, and having the responsibility of... um, you know, working with their families um, and during the time that I'm with them, you know, not just to protect, to make sure that they, you know, get through the school day, you know, physically, you know, safe, but to really to protect protect their freedom of thought. And, um, you know, so I'm very grateful to you for nurturing that yesterday. I saw that, what you just spoke of myself yesterday. And, uh, it bothered me a little bit, but I know that those things occur because at this point in their lives, as you said, their minds are very malleable and they're adopting philosophies and ideals. And there was a young brother who, uh, after we talked, he was like, black people ain't going to never change. And no matter what, they ain't going to never change. I'm like, dude, you're like 13. Where did you get that idea from? Your people are great. They have done things that no other society or civilization in history has managed to duplicate. Why do you think that they're so bad and going to stay bad? Somebody's told you that. And it reminded me like maybe a preacher's son or something like that. You know what I mean? But somebody told him that. Because he hasn't had enough time to experience it to find out for sure. Right. So yeah, but you know, to know that we can come in and make a change in their mindset now is a wonderful thing. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Scotty, any questions, brother? Um, no, no, just just some comments. And I, I just think that it's important that we teach our young people not just take our words for these things, but like Max, you said you pulled up the 13th Amendment. Let them read it for themselves because research is very, very important. I mean, we got people still walking around today thinking that black people prior to, to 1964 had everything they needed. You know, and and just don't want to research just how bad it was for black folks. I mean, if we were so employing each other at such high rates, there would have never been a need for a black migration to the north for jobs and things of that nature. There would have never been a need for Dr. King's poverty tour of the south, which there's video of. And so... You know, young people will hear, well, it's really all people, but young people are especially vulnerable to when they hear adults say these sort of things, and they just pick them up. And we should always challenge people to provide the resources. You know, a a belief is, is one thing. Anybody can hold a belief, okay? 
uh, uh, but a belief is an effect. It's a belief. So look up the facts is, is all I would say. And so it, uh, being in a teacher's position, that is very important responsibility. And a lot of people don't want to take that on. So I commend you for even wanting to take that on, Julia. Yes. And uh, from what I understand, I'm coming back again, as she spoke of uh, the teachers there were impressed of uh, those who are uh, particularly involved in the lives and the futures of what these students are dealing with. And uh, hopefully I, I did everything right. I tried to. I was trying to watch my words because I got to remember I'm, I'm talking to these young folks. But with me, you know, I keep thinking of what Albert Einstein said. If you can't explain it to six-year-olds, then you don't understand it yourself. So, it, you know, I try to keep my story the same where I can talk to the, the young folks and the old folks and it's the same story and they all understand it because it's that simple, you know? Absolutely. And thank you for that, Scotty. And I just, you know, I'm learning as a young teacher from the mentor teachers at that school. And I chose that school because we know, you know, I'm sure we could do lots of, um, have a long conversation about what's wrong in public education. And there's a lot wrong. I chose W.A. Perry because there are adults in the school that really do take the commitment to education as a tool of self-determination and liberation seriously. And um, those are the adults that you met, the teachers that you met, uh, Max. And so, um, you know, I I commend them. Anything that I do that is good, I'm, I'm just watching them and copying what they do. So... Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Is there anything you would like to close with? Uh, uh, before she closes out, this evening? Max, before she closes out, Julia, Julia? I'm sorry. Any, any messages Nothing. for the people or anything for the kids? Um, before you close oh, out, Julia, just, oh, yes. one ahead, thing, just one more thing to what you just said. I mean, it's great to hear that you have those sort of teachers at the school that you are at. Because there was a conversation being had earlier on the network on another radio program, and they were talking about, you know, integration. Would do Was integration a good thing or was it a bad thing? And one of the things that they brought up was that we – For me. I can't hear either, and yeah. and I'm reading a book oh. about what he's talking about. Okay, <laughs> okay. Some, okay. somehow I got muted. I don't know what happened there. I must have hit my keyboard by mistake. Um, I was saying they were having a conversation on integration today. Was it good or bad for the black community? And one of the things that they mentioned, and I can remember in the 1970s in elementary school, we really did have teachers that cared more before, you know, so-called integration. But I don't want people to use integration as an excuse for not having good teachers that care because it shouldn't matter. A teacher, it shouldn't matter. A teacher should care. And so it's good to hear that, that Julia, you have a, a co-teachers in that school that take the education of the children serious and that you're teaching them, you know, a, a, a self-determining, you know, philosophy. So thank you for that. Yes. Yes. I look at teachers well, educated like superheroes. <laughs> Go ahead, superhero. <laughs> yes, and I do I would be I would not want to leave this conversation without saying, you know, Scotty, I'm reading a book right now, um, called Learning in a Burning House. Have you heard of this book? No, I had not. So it's about how part of what happened with the desegregation was the mass firing 
of black teachers specifically, black teachers, principals, and superintendents. And one thing that's a little bit, um, it just is about the school that I'm at, is it's an almost all-black school in terms of the students, and it's an almost all-black school, as Max said, in terms of the staff as well. And I don't, the reason that I mention that is because there are a lot of movies out there, you know, from the Michelle Pfeiffer movie, whatever that was, about, you know, white teachers with um, black and brown students. But I can't think of, except for um, the Sydney Poitier film, very many movies that um, really honor black teachers in the United mm-hmm. States. And it's, to me, when I think about why it is that the school that I'm at is a school where there is breathing room around education and where I have been able to find mentors who um, who are using education as a tool of self-determination, the fact that it is a black-led space, that it is a mostly black space, I don't think that's a coincidence, if that makes sense. Um, I think that the fact that there are um, teachers who have had, obviously not the same experiences exactly, but um, teachers, I I know that my mentors, the fact that they are black teachers um, is part of um, their commitment to self-determination for the students and to liberation and their ability to walk with the students in that way and then to teach me you know them um being african american and having the experience that experience of what it means to experience institutional racism and modern day slavery and everything that we're talking about and and working against um that's not a small thing and so i just i can't leave this conversation without saying that talking about how it is that black educators and black leaders in education were strategically fired um, and taken out of the classroom. I, we can't have a conversation about education in the United States without talking about how white white supremacists and other forces of power have taken black educators out of the classroom. And then I can't talk about what is good about American education without talking about black educators um, as well. So I just want to lift that up. Man, words like that are the definition of being able to stand up and speak out bravely. Uh, Max, we got a call on the board. They may have a question uh, for our guest tonight. Uh, sure. 757, you're on New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. Thank you for calling in. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hello, Scotty. What's up, Max? I wanted to buttress what that young what that young lady was saying. This is Otis again, Otis Griffin. Julia Dawson. I swore I wasn't. I swore I wasn't going to call him, but she hit the nail on the head. I told you, I'm 63 years old. I'm barely a mile and a half away from the school that I spent the first six years in, as a all black school in a county, York County, historically black county. What she just told you is what. I'm upset with Obama for actually creating the second wave of dismissal of black educators. When he and Arnie Duncan put forth their new education bill and allowed Rahm Emanuel and quite a few other people, 
the guy Kevin Johnson in Sacramento, but she can probably tell you all across this country from Baltimore, Boston, Detroit, when they put in their new education bills, guess what schools got shut down for this new voucher system and uh, with Common Core? Black educators. Guess who went to jail in Atlanta after leaving out of Philly and black uh, educators. a couple of them in D.C.? Black, and primarily black female educators. And, and it was a double advantage because most of them were within four to five years of retirement, which means the, the, the states reaped a hell of a benefit because they didn't end up giving them full retirement. And so what she just told you, I experienced in sixth grade in 1962-63. And now to have a black face on the second wave of doing that is unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable how many black females were unemployed under the face of the first black president. I, I'm just going to hang on and listen from this on out. All right. Thank, thank you uh, for that comment, Otis. Um, Julia, let me ask you this question. Uh, given what Otis just laid out and what you shared with us from the book that you're reading, how do you how does that figure into what's known as the school to prison pipeline in your opinion that's a big question well i'm grateful for what otis shared and i was not aware that there was a second wave of a strategic firing i'll i'll have to look into that and um I know the person who, I don't know know her, but it makes me want to look and see the person who wrote this book, Learning in a Burning House, see um, what she's written recently about this. But one way that I think um, a lack of black educators and um, educators that have been targeted themselves by um the prison system by um, policing, racial profiling, when when there are not teachers in a classroom who have family members who have been targets of these systems, then, you know, I mean, at our school, for example, we have some of the lowest referral rates in our district. There is, you know, there are systems in place that go above and beyond to avoid children entering the juvenile justice system. And so how does a lack of black educators, let me try to get back to your question, play into the school-to-prison pipeline? Well, um, you know, the same ways that um, white supremacist conditioning, if you want to talk about, I would say, um, you know, I can only talk from my experience as a white Southern woman. You know, the ways that we are conditioned, um, you know, growing up in segregated white spaces, um, you know, Eddie Gloud in his book, Democracy in Black, talks about how people, white people are trained um, around white fear, you know, something that we saw most recently in the um, the case of Terrence Crusher pressure and the, um, you know, the verdict of not guilty for that police officer. So when 
when young, when little white girls and, and young white men are trained to fear blackness and to, um, you know, criminalize, to hold um, blackness and black people in contempt or in pity, when we're trained that, you know, everything great in the world came out of Western Europe and, you know, Africa is just a place, well, one, it's a continent and not a country and, um, you know, it didn't exist before Europeans got there and, you know, all of these um, messages um, plays into these stories. You know, they shape people in ways so that when white teachers encounter black students, uh, you know, we can't separate the stories and the conditioning from those daily interactions. And black students then become, um, you know, little children become men, you know, in those in those moments. Um, children who get second chances and get forgiven, they become, you know, potential threats. Um, you know, so I'm I'm hoping that is answering your your question. But people become dehumanized and criminalized, and I and you know, of course, I don't think that um, teachers, white teachers, grow up wanting to do that. But our intentions and what actually happens on a day to day basis um, are two very different things, and. And the school-to-prison pipeline, we know, um, over, you know, it targets black children, it targets Latino children. Um, and I think that, that this is why, you know, when we have people that have been conditioned the way that that we've been conditioned and who don't have alternative experiences to, to prove that conditioning wrong, when we go, when we don't live in the same neighborhoods that our students live in, um, you know, this is what happens. And so I hope that's one, those are some of my thoughts about that. Um, yeah, last question. Um, I don't want to keep you, uh, but the last question, I, I know you said you are a new teacher. Um, are you aware that some teachers of unions across uh, this country actually invest their pensions in private prisons? That's something we've uncovered over the years. Max um, has shared that, or I, or you know, in one of his workshops since we've met, and and it's something that I'm interested in looking in, in terms of the what exactly, for example, the South Carolina pension, um, what companies, you know, my own retirement is linked to. Because that that's a disgusting, um, you know, just part of how disgusting these um, profit chains work. And so I am aware of that, and it makes me um, even more committed to doing the research to figure out what exactly the companies are that are paying my retirement. Um, because, um, you know, what you're alluding to is how can we as educators, um, all of us of all lineages, you know, who are on this planet, who do truly care about justice, we can't really, you know, we have to put our, our actions where our mouth is and how can we be in a classroom and 
say that we're about justice if our retirement money is feeding um, slavery. You know, those two things cannot coexist, um, should not coexist. So thank you for for bringing that up. And, um, you know, you, you've got me now. My homework is to look and see what's going on with the retirement system for teachers in South Carolina, and I will do that. Hopefully you know, there are others who are listening who will join me in that research. You remind me of something that uh, one of my initial mentors in the prison industrial complex has always been trying to drill into me, even to this day. He says, I'm actually still not getting it to the very point of it all. And that is the investment firms. The investment firms are at the top of the food chain when it comes to the prison industrial complex. In every aspect of it, whether it be the purchasers who buy goods and services, the insurance companies, whatever they may be, all have their money tied up in these investment firms like the Vanguard Group. And uh, that happens with the, the retirement plans for teachers. And the last we heard, it was about $100 million collectively invested in private prisons through the teachers' union. So uh, mm. I guess the best way to uh, solve that problem is to contact your investment firm or whoever it is that handles your retirement uh, funds and let them know that you're aware that it's possible that you may be invested in private prisons and if so could you please look at that and if that's the case I don't want my money invested in private prison stocks. Find another stock. I don't care what kind of bundle you got me in but I don't want to be in this stock. Scotty Max, now here I am a teacher with two days to go before summer break but you both have given me some summer <laughs> homework. <laughs> Man, the fight never ends and the struggle is real. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I the, here there's my homework, and I hope and I will come back to you with those answers. And what I hope to come back to you with is some fellow educators that are committed to starting that divestment campaign. Look towards Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York, has done that with their teachers union already. They've uh, we've had them on the program before, and they've already initiated the processes to remove their uh, retirement funds from investments in private prisons. Will do. Indeed, indeed. Thank you again, Julia. Uh, you have a fantastic day, and I look forward to talking with you again. Same here. Thank you. Blessings to you both. Blessings to Tribal. Indeed, indeed. Good night. Good you night. Got it. Good night. Good night. Julia did say some very powerful things, man. Uh, very, very powerful things. I'm glad that she's so very much aware of the circumstances that she's in, particularly the position she finds herself in. As she said, we're at a school that's predominantly all black in South Carolina, you know, and uh, it's not just any school system, but they've had some very uh, public and recent circumstances that have shined magnifying glasses on them. For instance, the young lady that was brutalized in a classroom by the school resource officer who tossed her like a garbage bag across the room, and uh, the whole world watched that occur. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as you all were describing the interaction uh, with the students was I was thinking about the civil rights period which you know we kind of went over but it's, it, we need to, to talk to these young people because they usually make up the core of movements of mass movements um, and that was true during you know the 1960s high school and, and college students uh, uh, were on those front lines and so it is imperative uh, that we recruit you know, younger abolitionists, just in case 
We hoping, but just in case, we can't end slavery during our lifetime. At least I'll go to my grave knowing uh, my grandsons and, and daughters will be carrying on the fight. Words, Scotty. That's what I've been doing now for at least three different generations. Like I, I've been visiting schools and talking to the youth, whether it be through the education systems, which I've done quite a deal of, or just independently going to where they are, talking with them, uh, you know, and and telling them what I've been telling everybody for years. So I've literally seen at least two generations growing up as abolitionists. Why? And it's why we see a lot of the people like out in Rhode Island where we did certain movements over the past few, few years, which were led by people who I met when they were in grammar school. And now they're writing books on revolutions, <laughs> you know? So it's a beautiful thing to see this occur generation after generation and be building up stronger each time. I think this is our generation right now, both the young and the old who are going to make the difference. Right, right, right. So um, did we want to move to the next story or did we want to take an early break so we don't have to interrupt? Let's do that. Let's take an early break. I I do want to make note that uh, you guys should look into that story about G4S being the largest employer on the continent of Africa. And if you look on New Abolitionist Radio in the comments section, you'll see the uh, history of G4S and its relationship to the GEO group. It's very important that you understand the connections that are going on here. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back. Providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We're talking about modern day slavery and human trafficking. We just had Julia Dawson on from South Carolina and educated there, and she was really uh, dropping some troops on us. And we discussed uh, our, our recent event that we had where I talked with the kids there at her school. Um, next story we want to keep you up to date on is what's happening in Mississippi. You know, we've been talking about Mississippi now for, for a couple of years, and at several points we have said, loud and clear, that Mississippi is, is in such a bad situation right now that the National Guard needs to be called out to protect the people. I mean, that's how bad it is. The entire prison system was determined to be corrupt. The entire prison system. You had the uh, the Longest reigning, um, the, uh, the longest running chairman, or what was he? What was Christopher Epps' position again, Scotty? He was the director uh, of the of board the, of ed, uh, the director of prisons. Yes, he was the uh, state director of prisoners. I don't know what his uh, exact title was, but right, he's he, in charge of all the prisons. Yeah, he was in charge of all the prisons he, in the state. He's in charge so. of all the prisons. He was also in charge of giving out the uh, 
the contracts as well, prisons. of course. Of course, because he would yeah. be in a department head. That's like, he was like, like if we're talking federal government, the head of the Bureau of Prisons. So yes, he, he, was he was the head of Mississippi prisons, therefore in a position to award uh, um, um, contracts. Mm-hmm. And he was also the head of the organization that monitors prisons to make sure that they are up to standards. And he was giving himself 100% awards. You know, like we have 100% uh, kept up to the qualifications required of the prisons when at the same time Frederick Judges was telling us that it was a cesspool of violations of uh, constitutional violations and particularly with the juvenile detention facilities that were going on there where kids were being molested and raped and abused and brutalized not only by the uh, their fellow inmates but also by the staff so this is the type of circumstance they found themselves in so now we're hearing from legislators uh, you know when things like this come out when this city or this state is in such a boil you're going to see the true faces so they had a mississippi lawmaker recently just tweet out that about louisiana we ain't talking about mississippi now he's talking about louisiana he says the destruction of these monuments erected in loving memory of our family and fellow southern americans is both heinous and horrific if the, and I use this term extremely loosely, leadership of the Louisiana wishes to, in a nauseous fashion, burn books or destroy historical monuments of our history, they should be lynched. Let it be known, I will do all in my power to prevent this from happening to in our state. So this is based on the removal of the monuments in Louisiana, four of them so far, that they've had to do in the middle of the night because they're so afraid of the white supremacists shooting them that they had to do it in the middle of the night. This is an ongoing thing happening over right, right now in Mississippi. And as I said, these evil people are starting to show their true colors. And they're not just the average Joe. We're talking about lawmakers, legislators, who in full fascist uh, racist uh, you know, standards are coming out and saying things like these black people who are causing problems should be hung from trees. I mean, that should qualify you as an immediate dismissal from position yes. whether you were elected or not. Well, Max, it actually would, um, um, on that story, I actually sent a letter off to the ACLU today. Um, asking them to represent me in a class action lawsuit it, it, because I believe it could achieve class action status. But if not, I'll be the lone plaintiff if nobody else wants to sign on to this lawsuit against the state of North Carolina for uh, forcing American citizens to promote uh, um, treason, insurrection, rebellion, slavery, and, and racism. So, like you just said, the 14th Amendment, man, you know, is very serious about treason and insurrection. It's just not about uh, um, um, uh, citizenship rights being granted to people born in the United States. That's just the first section. It's still got four other sections, and it talks a lot about not supporting or paying for 
uh, any expenses uh, related to slavers losing property or anybody who, who was in rebellion, losing any kind of thing, you know, their property got destroyed because, you know, the Union Army came through and burnt down your house or whatever. You wasn't getting compensated for it. So how is it 150 years later, well, 149 years later, the 14th Amendment was passed in 1866. How is it that today we're being forced to fund the maintenance because these these monuments aren't on are they on private property no they're not they're on public property who pays for the upkeep of public property all the taxpayers do that's who and so as a U.S. citizen, how are you going to force the descendants of enslaved Africans, descendants of those who fought to end slavery and defeat these treasonous slavers, how are you going to force us to pay taxes to go towards maintaining that sort of thing? And you are right. Any sitting congressman, I don't care if it's the CEO of USA Inc., I don't care if it's a state senator or a state representative. If you're expressing insurrectionist thoughts right there, I bet you there's something in that state constitution, like in North Carolina, that would uh, call for you to be immediately dismissed. I think that's also in the 14th Amendment, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, man, like, for real, this is Dylan Roof all over again. When Fox News and Ann Coulter and Don, Donald Trump all started talking about how, you know, we should be killing certain people uh, because they're raping our women and taking over our land. And then Dylan Roof killed nine people. And right here, my neighbors in South Carolina, he said, uh, to quote him exactly, let me pull it right back up here. He said, if, you know, burn books or destroy historical moments of our history, they should be lynched. They should be lynched. Now, let's say somebody takes him at his word. Say, well, that's my lawmaker, and he said they should be lynched, so let me go find these impudent Negroes who have caused this problem. Whether it was a black person or not, they're going to find a black person. And they kill him. Is this man responsible for causing that murder? Because that could happen. You're calling for death. You're not suggesting it. You're saying they should. Not they might be, but it might be a good idea, or maybe you should... No, they should be lynched. And you didn't mince words. You were talking about hanging them from a tree. So if the person dies, if somebody gets killed because of this, who is the person responsible for the murder other than just the one that pulls a trigger or pulls up a rope or whatever he may do? But I didn't mean to minimize your point, Max. I mean, I know I kind of went off on a tangent there talking about treason and rebellion, but what he did is a crime. Is a crime. There is criminal code, meaning law, because he inciting a riot. He's inciting insurrection. That's against the law. That's still on the books. He could be prosecuted for that. But we know how the good old boy work uh, system works. And but if I was a person who lived in that district of his, I'd definitely be trying to get him prosecuted. Yeah, somebody should be doing something about this guy right now. And I'm not calling for his death like he did for us. You know, that's that's not how we roll. Um, we're supposed to be a land of law and order. Apparently, our lawmakers don't understand that. And, you know, while this was going on, there was another article 
came out about Louisiana. And also the mayor had some really powerful words to say about why they've taken down those uh, monuments. I think we should play what the mayor had to say. I think this would be a good point to put that in there. So um, let me see if I can pull it up here for you, Scotty. I got it in here somewhere in our list of things to cover today. Uh, the video of the mayor speaking. And uh, once I get a hold of it, we can give it a play. There it is. All right, and, and I will put it on New Abolitionist Radio, Scotty, so it'll be available for you just momentarily. Okay, okay I'm getting there now, sir. No, I've been having problems. I don't know about you, Max. It could just be on my end, but been having problems loading up Black Talk Radio Network, but uh, yeah, New Abolitionist Radio's page loaded up fine. The mayor of New Orleans just gave an incredible speech. Is that the video, Max? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I think he speaks very clearly what this uh, he's doing he's... and what it all means. Okay, let's go ahead and let that roll. These statues are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. These monuments were part of that terrorism, as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. Another friend asked me to consider these four monuments from the perspective of an African-American mother or father trying to explain to their fifth grade daughter why Robert E. Lee sat atop of our city. Can you do it? Yeah, the Confederacy I, I, was on the it. wrong side of history and humanity. It sought to tear apart our nation and subjugate our fellow Americans to slavery. This is a history we should never forget and one that we should never, ever again put on a pedestal to be revered. Thank you, sir. For those that don't believe me because I'm just a dumb black person, uh, that was a white man telling you what those symbols mean. That it ain't about no history, it ain't about no heritage, unless you mean your heritage of practicing racism and slavery. And nobody in nobody in their right mind, I would think, would want to promote that type of stuff. Why would you why would you tell me you against racism and you for practicing justice? But you want to keep these monuments up. That doesn't, that's not logical. That does not compute. I could think of a lot more things tax dollars could be done with to promote justice than promoting uh, anti-American uh, treasonous slavers. I can, it, it makes absolutely no sense, but I'm a black person and, and you know, some of our people don't put a lot of faith in, in, in what black people say, but that's a white man telling you. It is absolutely ridiculous to put up monuments and put white supremacy on the pedestal, literally. So, but, you know. I hope your lawsuit gets accepted by the ACLU. You say ACLU, right? Yes, yes. And somebody asked me, why would I choose the ACLU saying that they're funded by George Soros and, and all this and that? I don't know if George Soros donates to the ACLU, but I know the ACLU is a nonprofit, and they take donations from the public. And I know the ACLU, uh, along with the Southern Poverty Law Center, have been behind a lot of these lawsuits attacking the system of slavery. 
whether we're talking about Madison County, Mississippi, where they're representing uh, Americans uh, who happen to be of African descent who are being targeted by the slave catchers, or, or whether we're talking about the Southern Poverty Law Center, where was that, Jackson, Mississippi, or, or where was it where they sued to shut down that for-profit bail company, you know? That was uh, Alabama. That, that was Alabama, and they, they ended up um, shutting down their operations in cities across the United States. And so people ask me, another person asked me, well, why you didn't go with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund? Because I'm trying to be codified, okay, and I'm not suing the state of North Carolina as a colored person. I'm suing them as a American, as as a veteran of the United States Army. I'm going into court codified. And and so that's that's why I chose not to contact the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is separate from the NAACP, the organization everybody um, knows about. Um, but they're they're in tur- turmoil uh, right now. So you know I'm going with the ACLU. I'm hoping they take the case. If they don't take the case, then I will do a fundraiser. I will contact, you know, some private attorneys. Maybe I'll contact uh, Brett Grody with the Abolitionist Law Center in Pennsylvania. Maybe they can put me in touch with some good abolitionist attorneys that can practice law in the state of North Carolina, and they tell me what it's going to cost, and I'll throw up a fundraiser. But I'm, I'm really hoping the ACLU of North Carolina will take my case. Hope so. Uh, makes it reminds me of the case they had regarding religion and the Ten Commandments being in court. So uh, you know, we have an international audience. A lot of people from the north as well as the west, and the east, and the south, and, and overseas as well. And you may not be familiar with these racist icons and images everywhere you look, but I'm from South Carolina. I'm here every day, and I was there when the flag was taken down, when the racists came out and wanted to kill us all. And if you look on New Abolitionist Radio right now, you'll see a picture of a little girl holding a sign, standing in front of a statue, saying, erected by the women of South Carolina. That statue happens to be right there in the Capitol, where we're at, uh, right in front of the State House building. It's a picture of my granddaughter holding the words of Malcolm X underneath a statue dedicated by the white women of South Carolina, thanking the white soldiers who fought for slavery for standing up for their country. And it's dedicated to the CSA, Confederate States of America. So my little dark-skinned granddaughter is standing in front of this monument to uh, people who wanted her to be proper. And I have to see that every day. And that's just one thing. We, Many of us have to see these things every single day. Some of us walk into courtrooms underneath Confederate flags. And you're paying for it, Max. That's the insult on top of it all. If it was just on somebody's private property, if you flying a Confederate flag off the back of your pickup truck, I don't care about that. That's your property. But when we start talking about courthouses, when we start talking about public parks where children go to play, oh, no, no, that's my money, too. And I'm not paying for you to oppress me. Yeah, and that's what it is. The, the mayor said this is very much, uh, you know, terrorism. That's exactly it what is. it is. Just daily terrorism, reminding us of what can happen to us, what did happen to us, telling our children, look at this man. 
He slaughtered people just like you, and we erected a monument in marble to him in front of the state house to remind you who he is. So you stay in your place. Exactly. It's a form of intimidation, and, you know, they're all over North Carolina, which doesn't surprise me because North Carolina at one time had the highest uh, 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 Klan membership in the state. Not Mississippi, I mean in the country. Not Mississippi, not Alabama, not Louisiana, not Florida, not Georgia, not Tennessee. North Carolina had, and these these, uh, terrorists were committed because they had to pay dues to be in the Ku Klux Klan and they had the largest due-paying membership in the nation here in North Carolina. And, And those monuments were put up like like what the uh, mayor said, they're just like burning the cross in, in your yard, which my family was a victim of. I wasn't alive at the time, but, um, uh, you know, they burnt a, a cross in my grandfather's yard. And it, it took my uh, uncles uh, all coming out with guns blazing to chase them off. So, so I mean, it is no small thing to me. And any self-respecting person, anybody who claims to be an American, how can you support your tax dollars going towards treasonous, racist slavers? And misogynist, too, for the ladies out there, okay? Misogynist, too. So they got to go, Max. They got to go. Um, Otis, I see you on the board again. Uh, Chime in, bro. What you got for us? Yes, I'm listening to you talk, and... I told you what made me start following you when I first listened in is you understand the importance of words. Max is talking about what happens in South Carolina with his monument. I go to and I I go to the uh, conservative pages a lot, and you see the codified words that they've been using all our life. When you start talking about the women's group and all that, they put. I think we might have lost oh, Otis there. Gray. Oh, there he is. And you, you, you hear them talk about the gray line? That's a code for the people who are descendants of Confederacy. They mean when they say the gray line, they're talking about preserving their memory, their history. They don't care about the carnage. There's the same speech from that uh, from the guy in North, in uh, New Orleans to say that's exactly what's been happening to us. They're teaching people people coming out with degrees that don't bother to Google these words and phrases and see what they're attached to. These people have been nonprofits who have actually used government monuments and people don't want to understand what they stand for. I've had educated people argue with me, attorneys, that it's not going to make a difference. No, it might not make a difference overnight, but it chips away at the foundation that keeps hurting your rights as a citizen. Forget whether or not I'm black. I want to tie it into this. I had some people on talking about how Clarence on on uh, gerrymandering, why he sided with black people, and people are talking about, oh, he decided with he sided with the Democrats. No, structured. He actually stopped. You're going in and out on us, Otis. Right. You were saying Pardon that you um, you were breaking up on us. This is what we heard. 
that there's a conversation on why did Clarence Thomas, uh, talking about North Carolina again, uh, vote with the quote-unquote liberal judges to strike down the racist gerrymandering of the voting districts here in North Carolina. And you said, you know, people were asking, well, why did Clarence Thomas side with black people? Well, he wasn't necessarily siding with black people, but go ahead, Otis. No, he didn't side with black people. He sided with the Constitution. As a citizen, they do not have a right to delude your And that's exactly what that gerrymandering did. So he didn't side on the on the fact that it was blacks being discriminated against. He was the other rulings he had used. As a matter of fact, there's going to be another case that's that's, that's going to be important coming up, and I forget the name of it, but it also is based on this. Win is to stop using the color. Use the fact that you are a bona fide citizen and your rights are being suppressed. Right, right. That's what I think uh, people don't understand, Otis. And, I, you know, I have been trying to codify or refine my language. And code means that it's not really obvious what I'm talking about. I know that these statues and monuments are racist and, and, and part of white supremacy. But I also know that people become distracted when you they start playing, oh, you playing the reverse race card and all that. And I heard Mr. Fuller, Neely Fuller Jr., um, say something that made sense to me. I don't always find what he says, you know, agreeable, but that's okay. You know, they're, they're, I don't agree with my own mama all the time, but it, it, disagreement's okay. But he said something that was the absolute truth. He was like, if you can explain an injustice without using the R word, then use that other word. You're still explaining. You're still uh, 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 bringing to attention an injustice. You're just not going to use a hot button or uh, what should I say? You're not going to use a buzzword that's going to make people take offense and go into denial mode. So that's why I framed uh, my complaint uh, letter to the ACLU stressing the fact that I'm an American citizen. I'm a United States veteran. I'm also a descendant of an American revolutionary. So I'm going to use my American privilege to press these rights. And look, the government didn't give us no rights, okay? the What King and them was fighting for was not for rights to be granted to us. You already had the rights. They were just being denied to you. And so like Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. I don't know. I was born with human rights and you're going to respect those rights. And you wrote a constitution and you said as an American citizen, I had these rights. Well, I'm demanding those rights. I ain't asking you to give me nothing. I'm here to take them. I I agree with you a hundred percent. I can tell you, uh, Robert Wright, who served in the, in Republican and Democratic uh, presidents' cabinets, he just does his resistance report at eight o'clock five days a week. His topic today was just that he could not believe that Armstrong Williams and uh, Ben Carson had the nerve to get up and decree that. Black people want something for free from this country. He said the very same thing. You pay 
you being black, it has to do with someone trying to subvert your rights as a citizen. I said a couple of weeks ago, wouldn't it be amazing if the feds enforced constitutional violations with the same fervor and vigor that they uh, chase drug prosecution? Can you imagine that? And those are supposed to be the supreme laws of the land. Here's here's another one. When you keep hearing these uh, supposed to be pundits that are educated, like Coates, keep talking about the right to reparations. I keep saying to them, you don't have to go back to the 1800s for the rights to reparations. You can look at the very archived uh, records of the Smithsonian. Homeowners Association, the VA, the banks and mortgage companies that were government agencies that created redlining and wrote it into the very uh, contract of people who built homes from 1930 on. We have current evidence that reparations should be extended to black people because we were systematically, up until 1971, there were places you couldn't buy. So what did that? What happened to that? That means your parents and grandparents that were following the American tradition and seeking the dream were robbed of their very wealth. You can't have wealth when your homes were taking 40,000 families per year for over 12 years to build the, the interstates in this country. They went that way. They were used to deliberately dislodge black families that were creating wealth. Yeah. Otis. I've had it happen to me twice. But Otis, you know, this has always been my issue with the reparations crew, and we have made some inroads with Cobra. Uh, we just had a couple of uh, their members on a couple of weeks ago. But the very ideal of you asking for reparations that happened for, happened for something that occurred over 150 years ago when just yesterday they probably shuffled in about 10,000 new slaves on the new plantation. Slavery ain't never been abolished. And all the things that you mentioned, all, you know, denying them access to the Social Security Fund. You know, they weren't, they weren't able to get that. All the land that was stolen from them and given to white people, okay? And, and, and so we're all reparations for all of those things, not just because some Africans were enslaved. Yes, they should pay up for that exactly. too, but let's not forget, exactly. it's, 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 it's not like, you know, we've been living in, in, in uh, it's not like we have not been living under modern day slavery and terrorism. And, and this is where it comes together. Because these people that are incarcerated now, over half a million, are also direct descendants of the very same people who have us, black people, descendants of slaves, who have the government-sanctioned programs denied us the very wealth building since the 1900s, not, not the 1800s. So these very same people that are incarcerated, who so many of them are actually uh, uh Victims of lead poisoning, uh, no job, home stolen from their parents so you couldn't pass down wealth. When they come out of jail, that should be part Immediately go into training programs, be given. So reparations can come in all sorts of ways. 
As a matter of fact, here's a perfect one. I heard a guy from Kaiser Permanente explain that black families have been robbed because white people are on welfare. He said that's exactly why health care is tied to jobs. Preferential jobs get their insurance through employment. So that's why even the ACA, he says no matter what form of health care that they come up with now, if they do not go to a plan like uh, Kaiser Permanente where the, the everything is structured and the people that are in that system have to take care of you and lower your insurance premiums, you lose because you're black and you can't get company-subsidized insurance. You have to pay yourself. So in other words, reparations should be based on current history. Stop worrying about whether or not it's, quote, attached to slavery from 1800s. Look at the current depression and oppression created by government programs. Right. You know, um, that's what I'm saying. The when last... you come out of jail, you should be able to get a job. Your The fact that you were uh, incarcerated should not be a roadblock, all this box checking whether or not you were crime. No. None of that. Right. Because that government programs put you there. I would say to your point about what could reparations look like besides a check, a free college tuition paid for at community colleges or state colleges, something Bernie Sanders was trying to push, but I heard some people saying that we don't need those handouts. But, hey, that's reparations. We all did, even though it would have given it to all poor people. I mean, who in their right mind is going to turn down free education for your children? You know, you like paying student loans off or something. And And then, Otis, another thing I found out about uh, uh, Native Americans, they exempt from paying federal taxes. We should be exempt from paying federal taxes. That's exactly right. That's what I'm saying to you. And what really gets me is we have too many miseducated, college-educated black people that are used to going into what has become a class situation. Those beneath me don't deserve it. I went to college. No. What good is your degree if they're not training you in a job that you can actually get and provide for your family? That's what they're not getting. They get a sheepskin and think that piece of paper sets them apart from the rest of the community. When, in fact, you got a college degree based on the facts of your own people. Get out of here. Well, you know, gentlemen, you need we to are, unlearn some of the stuff. We're coming up on our last break, and I do want to squeeze one more story of the three or four that we have uh, up for us today before we uh, go into our regular scheduled segments. Um, we're going to be here every week. This is our ongoing conversation, and it's the only way we can solve this problem is by talking about it and facing it first. And these are hard truths to bear, but bear them we must. Hey, I appreciate you calling in with these topics. Uh, indeed, my brother Otis. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back on the other side, I want to put together some pieces about a brother out in Baltimore who is being caught up as collateral damage in a system that we have been trying to tell you needs to be changed for a very long time. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back after these messages.
tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty, any other final uh, comments on the last conversation before we get into the next story? Yes, yes. Just, just some final thoughts on that. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not saying, and I don't think anybody's saying, taking down these monuments is going to end racism. I think it's impossible to eliminate individual racism. You can't control the thoughts in the minds of an individual unless you're in charge of the mass media programming, okay? But what we can do is stop institutional racism. We can fight against that. That is something that we can change. And I don't want to hear nothing about um, any kind of naysayers and saying that you'll never get it done or, or the white man won't let you do this or the white man won't let you do that. I don't want to hear that, okay? I, I, we have to do something. We have to attack institutional racism. Let a racist be racist all he want to be. I don't care if an individual likes me or not. What I do care about is my rights being respected and that I'm being treated in a just manner. And nobody's going to give you justice. You have to go and take it, to quote Malcolm. Amen, brother. Uh, yeah, speaking of nobody's going to give you justice, that's where this next story is, what it's all really all about. This is brother out in Baltimore by the name of Ivan Potts. And his life was destroyed by corrupt policemen in Baltimore. Uh, and he's facing some real charges in real time. Now, I don't want to go into very much into detail on his story because I'm simply not aware of the details, the very the, the close details about, about it. But there's a video available on New Abolitionist Radio from our friends at the Real News Network where they tell you all about What I do want to talk about is how he ended up caught in the system, innocent, being arrested originally and harassed and abused and uh, railroaded by corrupt policemen who later on was found to be corrupt in the court. And I'll read you a piece of this article that comes from the Baltimore CBSlocal.com news where they said that about these seven convicted officers this is the largest corruption investigation in years involving Baltimore City police officers. Commissioner Davis, uh, Kevin Davis called it disgusting and a betrayal trust. He called the men 1930s-style gangsters. These police officers will never, ever, ever again commit the heinous acts that they have been alleged to commit in our community, Davis said. The officers identified below are accused of stealing money and property from people for no reason, pulling them over at traffic stops and taking thousands of dollars. They are also accused of severe overtime fraud, ripping off the city of about a half a million dollars. Now, this is the story about the cops that arrested this young, this this brother and put just destroyed his entire life. He's still fighting for his freedom right now after the police have been convicted and nobody's ever tried to connect the dots. We have been crying here for years about how if an officer or a prosecutor or anybody involved with sending people to prisons and jails is found to be corrupt 
or a criminal themselves, then I don't care if they've been on the bench for 40 years. If they've been in the field for 150 years, it don't matter. You have to check every single case they've worked on because there could be a man or a woman sitting in a prison jail or, or jail cell or prison cell right now for the past 20 years behind their lives, for 10 years, for 15 years. There could be somebody dead behind their lives who went you know, to a, a death chamber or anything like that. You have to look. People's freedoms are worth you looking. And we don't even have any kind of laws in place that require that to happen. So you got these seven police convicted in Baltimore, and everybody acts like this is the first time they did it. Like, nobody's been affected by them up until this point. In the meantime, Ivan Potts is fighting for his life and his freedom in Baltimore behind these corrupt police. And nobody's saying anything about it other than the uh, independent media like the Real News Network. Thank God for them and for us. Right. Um, that They do great work. Jared Ball, um, Eddie Conway, Paul J. I think is the uh, director and founder. That's a nonprofit media company as well, just like Black Talk Media Project, which manages Black Talk Radio Network. And, and they do a, a great job. I remember this story, and um, I remember um, it was announced right after Jeff Sessions had, had taken his oath as U.S. Attorney General and had put that garbage out there about, oh, we're not going to prosecute these police and these consent decree, uh, decrees that been entered into. We're not really for all of that, and we're not going to tell police how to do their job. See, that's him not doing his job. Like you said, Max, what if he was as interested in protecting American citizens' constitutional rights that are being violated by police as he is interested in ramping up the drug war and filling up American prisons. Exactly, exactly. We can't act like these guys and women who are in office are just now becoming criminals because we figured out, you know, we busted it or something. There's people's lives who have been affected dearly by this and Annie Dukin would be an example of how many lives can be affected she affected up 60,000 people and, and affected their futures and their lives and their security and now we're talking about cops who have been convicted of some of the most heinous in that word he used the, the uh, man they used heinous the chief of police heinous crimes and compared them to 1920 gangsters like you know the, the gangsters of the time that's how bad it was and nobody's saying anything about you know did they do this to anybody that needs to get free? Because if I had been arrested by these guys and I knew I was innocent, I would be sitting in my cell just raving that you can talk about these seven cops on the news, but you can't talk about me. Like, you don't care if I'm free or not. And that's a terrible mindset that we possess in this nation today. Even if you're innocent, if you're in jail, who cares? So what? You're a lost cause. We don't need to waste our time on I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rant like that. Scott. Oh no, you're not ranting, story, man. You speak in your mind. You speak in your We've mind. We've been saying this, and you, more importantly, you speak in your truth. We have been crying to people that you don't have to end slavery to stop that. You don't have to. There's got to be some lawmakers out there, somebody with the ability and the know-how and the power to say, "Look, this is what needs to be done," and here's the paperwork to make it happen. 
Right. So, so let's start with Ivan Potts, and then let's move on to the many thousands of others who are rotting in cells behind corrupt officials in the Department of Justice. Scotty, any of these particular stories that we have on our list or something else that you want to cover before we got into our main comments? Just one quick um, thing, uh, one quick update, um, and you mentioned it at the beginning of the program. I am Stephen happy. from Django. I'm happy to report to the new abolitionist radio audience that Sheriff David Clark Jr. uh, is in trouble and um, it appears that he will not be going to Homeland Security uh, to be a a liaison for the Homeland Security Secretary and local police and politicians and stuff all around the country. As the news broke that he plagiarized his master thesis and and lifted over 47 quotes and did not put them in quotations and even added a few words in between, you know, in between to make it seem like it was his own, uh, that they have pulled his master thesis from the website. It is under investigation and his job is in jeopardy with Homeland Security. They're even refusing to acknowledge that they even offered him a job. And so, I mean, there's just so many lessons in that. You know what I'm saying? David Clark is one of the most dangerous proxy racists in the United States. The state, the county of Milwaukee County had four people, including a newborn baby, die in that jail within six months. One man, Mr. Thomas, was was not given water for seven days as a punishment and died from dehydration. Seven of the sheriff's deputies in that jail have been indicted, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, it's just really been um, not such a good week for Sheriff David Clark. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm, I, I engage a lot of different people on Twitter. And he is one of them. And I do not have a trouble trouble speaking truth to power. I remember that time me and Max actually had an interaction with him on on Twitter. And Johanna had an interaction with him on Facebook and where he was going back and forth with us and and what have you. The 13th Amendment, yeah. Yeah, on the 13th Amendment. And so the things that that man has said, outright racist things, the things about locking up Americans indefinitely and throwing them into Guantanamo Bay uh, because they out here exercising their First Amendment speech rights against police brutality and they're demanding that that they be free of this violence, this state-sponsored violence. I tell you, I was kind of worried if he got in that position because he is not an ethical man. He is not a moral man. And I was wondering if he'll try to use that position to target us, Max. That did has um, crossed my mind. It's possible, Scotty, but I, you and I and Johanan and all the other abolitionists who have been making an impact to the point where even the President of the United States has, has to you know, say something about these things have had our lives and our safety in danger since we started. Um, and as you know from the stories you heard from me, that is something very real for our family. But he's a special kind of he's a special kind of sociopath, though. That man really concerns me. I do not think that he is mentally stable. I'm serious, man. I'm like, man, this guy get access to those kind of databases and and 
uh, given that kind of power, man, he already told you what he want to do with it. He want to label people like us enemy combatants and, and, and treat us like we're the terrorists. I'm not. I'm not scared, Scotty. I'm not worried. I'm not scared. I, I'm not scared, I've got Max. Lord on my side. I, and I know hey, you, you know hey. me, Max. Fear don't live uh-huh. here, but I do want right. to recognize a clear and present danger. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And there, that danger is going to be after the march on Washington, August nineteenth. Is it going to be even worse when the world hears us? You know, from Washington D.C., it'll be even worse then. And they're calling for lynching of lawmakers who uh, invoke their right to call for an impeachment of Donald Trump. Imagine what they'll say about somebody like us who can actually do something and cause a problem for the system that would not just be temporary. If the ACLU take my lawsuit, what do you think is going to happen to me? What do you think could happen to me? So I'm going to have to start working third shift to where I'm up at night. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? While everybody else is sleeping and then get my sleep when everybody else is up. You're going to have to do like Richard Pryor had to, you know, was talking about with the first black president. <laughs> you know, my fellow Americans, <laughs> you know, dutching, dodging, and whatnot. I know I've had to do that a few times already. I remember when I went to Missouri, when I got a, a note, uh, an email from allegedly from police over there saying if I went to Missouri to start trouble, I wouldn't be coming home. But I went to Missouri. So it's not that I'm saying I'm afraid because if I was afraid, I wouldn't be engaged in the things that I'm engaged in. But I'm no dummy. I do recognize danger. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. If uh, you know, like I said, I'm a man of faith. Um, I'm not, you know, out here preachy, but I'm a man of faith, and I believe that with God at my back, I got nothing to worry about. It. And if something happens to me, it's because it was time for something to happen. My life and my death should serve a purpose. But with that being said, man, we only got a few minutes left to do these last few segments. Uh, you want to want me to you want to start with? Uh, I guess the first one will be our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. We could play a two-minute clip of his own words, uh, and that would probably cover it. I can give you a quick uh, introduction to who we're talking about. Uh, our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Sean. Thomas. He, the man was just released yesterday, just yesterday, after 24 years in a prison for a crime he did not commit. And we, every week, talk about these different cases and these different men and women who have been in prison for crimes they did not commit. So it's on New Abolitionist Radio, top of the page area, um, two down, right after the uh, revolution, if you want. You can just click play and we'll let the audience hear his own okay, words. And give put me a second. This. this is a real human being. As I pull that up, mm-hmm. you said it's the second one down? It's right under the uh, Haitian Revolution post. Okay, let me pull that up. And a new abolitionist radio. A writer of the 21st Century uh, uh, Underground Railroad. Uh, come on. Facebook. It's Sean Thomas. It's Sean Thomas. Let me see yeah. if I can get this to play. Hold up, cause Facebook is kind of my screen is kind of <laughs> kind of locking up. All right, there it go. Let's get it going. Hey, where is the speechless right now? What's the first thing you're going to do? I'm doing it right now. Hugging <laughs> the people. What's going through your heart? What's going through your mind? I'm leaving behind a lot of good people that you know I ain't given this opportunity. 
you know, I ain't going to forget about him. And, you know, I hope to see him home one day like as myself. You know, it's been a struggle, a hard struggle. You know, just can't give up. That's why I'm here today. I got a good team, an Eagle team that was with me. Hey, good family support. Never gave up. It was hard. Never gave up. Now, James Fagorski worked for you so, so long, nine, almost eight years, 900 hours. And I heard that you were really instrumental in giving him information that helped make this day possible. Hey, sometimes I think it was my mind that he pushed me to remember things. You know, you can always remember the truth. You can't remember a lie. And that's what set me free today, the truth. And what will you do now? <laughs> They're great people, yeah. and they'll be in my life forever. And if there's anything I could do, I'm going to do it. Any plans for the future? Just a happy day. Any what? Plans for the future? Yeah, get married. Well, I see him about like six months to a year. That's great. That's great. Are you going to stay in Philadelphia? You're going to move? No, Philadelphia caused me too many heartaches. Yeah. Somewhere out south, South Carolina, North Carolina, somewhere right there. You got some people down there? Or? Yeah, my people right here. Everybody got nothing. That's great. All right. Man, welcome to Freedom, brother. Sean Thomas. Welcome to Freedom, Mr. Thomas. And it's a lot of people in there. And I, I don't mean to sound contentious or antagonistic towards anybody, but ignorance just makes me angry. And people be saying, I ain't going to the white man's court for nothing. So you mean to tell me then you would rather Mr. Sean Thomas stay in prison as an innocent man? Because the only way you're going to get him out is through the courts. And thankfully, there are people who are equipped and are prepared to run the 21st Century Underground Railroad and get some of these uh, uh, modern-day slaves out of slavery. Man. Oof. A 21st century railroad exists in our country right now, and it's people like the Innocence Project who are on it. it. You know, it doesn't have to be the exact same thing that we experienced in the 1800s, but it's the exact same effect, getting people from slavery to freedom, literally taking their bodies out of these places. And I, have, I can't give enough commendations to people who are involved in such selfless work. I can't think Perfect. of anybody other... I can't think of any uh, group other than the Innocence Project that has really been as strong as they have been. I mean, they're getting hundreds of people out every year. I, I believe I know of a few others. I think Mark Clements is involved in one group that's doing it as well. Mark Clements and uh, there's a couple others, but yes, yeah, no more death penalty. That's that's our brother Mark Clements up in Chicago. Shout out to him former victim of slavery, victim of the torture of uh, former Chicago police commander John Birch. Um, but but um, I'm telling you, Max, there is, you will have to look far and wide to find a group as large and as effective as the Innocence Project. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe Northwest University, those students, but aren't they working through the Innocence Project? I'm not sure. And but again, uh, I got to give a shout out to the Abolitionist Law Center, which has been assisting uh, our political prisoner, Mamiya Abu Jamal. Shout out, Abolitionist Law Center. All right, well there you have it. That is our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week, 
um, if you want to do the abolitionist and profile, and then I'll finish it off with our uh, revolution and that we'll be speak remember. Our abolitionist in profile will be Prince Hall. So let me go into it. Prince Hall, born in 1735 or 1738. They're not exactly sure. And he transitioned in 1807. He was an African-American noted as an abolitionist for his leadership in the free black community in Boston. See, again, I try to tell y'all, it ain't nothing wrong with being the descendant of an enslaved African, but let's not forget the hundreds of thousands of free black people that ran the Underground Railroad. I'm telling y'all, I know I know the way they show it in the mass media, and I'm not trying to disparage white abolitionists, but the way the mass media portrayed it, you wouldn't think that the black people had a huge role. Free black people had a huge role in running the Underground Railroad. Nothing could be further from the truth. They put their freedom at risk to free uh, free the enslaved and Prince Hall was one of those people so again he was an African American uh, noted as an abolitionist for his leadership in the free black community in Boston and as the founder of the Prince Hall Freemasonry he lobbied for education rights for black children and was active in the back to Africa movement Hall tried to gain New England's enslaved and free blacks a place in Freemasonry education and the military which were some of the most crucial spears of society in his time. Hall is considered the founder of black Freemasonry in the United States known today as Prince Hall Freemasonry. Hall formed the African Grand Lodge of North America. He was unanimously elected as Grand Master and served until his death in 1807. Uh, let me jump down to, uh, let's see, Hall, the, during the Revolutionary War, again, these people did not create this country by themselves. They couldn't beat the British until free blacks and enslaved black people got involved and won the war for them, just like we won the war for them during the Civil War. But during the Revolutionary War, War, Hall encouraged enslaved and free blacks to serve in the American colonial military. He believed that if blacks were involved in the founding of the new nation, it would aid in the attainment of freedom for all blacks. He just didn't know the treachery of Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and all them other slavers. Hall proposed that the Massachusetts Committee of Safety allow blacks to join the military. He and fellow supporters petitioned compared Britain's colonial rule with the enslavement of blacks. Their proposal was declined. Um, just some personal note that I know uh, or history that I know is that uh, George Washington banned blacks, free or enslaved, from serving in the Continental Army. Um, there were nine major battles of the of the Revolutionary War. George Washington and, and his white boys lost the first six, and only then did he lift the band, and we came in and won the last three, thus winning the war. So th these are just history facts that people are not taught. So uh, England issued a proclamation 
that guaranteed freedom to blacks who enlisted in the British Army once the British Army filled its ranks with black troops. The Continental Army reversed its decision and allowed blacks into the military. It is believed but not certain that Hall was one of the six Prince Halls from Massachusetts to serve during the war. All right, so if you want to read more about him, I am going to uh, post this. I have it up for you already. Okay, uh, last thing about him, he worked with the state political, worked within the state political arena to advance the rights of blacks in slavery and protect free blacks from being kidnapped by slave traders. He proposed the Back to Africa movement, pressed for equal educational opportunities, and operated a school for African Americans in his home. He engaged in public speaking and debate, citing Christian scripture against slavery to a predominantly Christian legislative body. New Abolitionist Radio salutes abolitionists and Freemasonry, uh, Prince Hall. Salute Prince Hall. Word, man. Sometimes it's the only way people even hear about these uh, historical people and what they were involved in. It's the we don't like know, this. man. We just don't know. Right. I was just talking about uh, your wife's relative. Is it your wife's relative? Yes, Paul Coffee. Yeah. Yes. Paul Paul Coffee uh, uh, built a shipping empire. He didn't have just one ship. He had a bunch of ships. And this was during the 1700s, early 1800s. And he employed hundreds of free blacks, and they used those ships to free, to smuggle enslaved Africans to freedom. And, and man, I hear people mentioning other people, and I was like, man, y'all don't know nothing about uh, Paul Coffey. I would say he was the most successful black businessman in before the 20th century. The first black millionaire. Mm-hmm. Word. Well, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left. Scotty, let me uh, get on to our history of rebellion and uh, close out the program. So today, we remember in our new segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, the Haitian Revolution, 1791. The most successful slave rebellion in history, the Haitian Revolution began as a slave revolt and ended with the founding of an independent state. <clears throat> the main insurrection started in 1791 in the valuable French colony of St. Dominique, inspired in part by the egalitarian philosophy of the French Revolution, black slaves launched an organized rebellion, killing thousands of whites and burning sugar plantations en route to gaining control of the northern region of St. Dominique. The unrest would continue until February 1794, when the French government officially abolished slavery in all of its territories. The famed rebel General Toussaint Louverture then joined forces with French Republicans and by 1801 had established himself as governor of the island. But when Napoleon Bonaparte's imperial forces captured Louverture in 1802 and attempted to reinstate slavery, <laughs> attempted to reinstate slavery, the four leaves took up arms once again, led by Jean-Jacques Dessalines in 1803, they defeated French forces at the Battle of Virtuaires. Lord, I've never had to say these words before. Pardon my non-French. The following year, the former slaves declared their independence and established the island as the new Republic of Haiti. News of the first successful rebellion, the only slave 
uprising in history to end with the foundation of a new country went on to inspire countless other revolts throughout the United States and the Caribbean. And here today on New Abolitionist Radio, we remember the Haitian Revolution of 1791. Salute. Salute, Scotty. Uh, got like just a minute left. Anything you want to say in closing? Yes, I want to thank our uh, guest, Julia, for coming on and, you know, just just giving me some hope and telling me about that school environment that she works in and how it is geared towards these students becoming self-determining and about empowerment to the point of, of liberation. And that's just very encouraging to hear because you don't often hear those type of stories, you know, coming out of any school district. So that was just very encouraging to hear um, her speak and also to know that that school um, had no problem with an abolitionist coming in and speaking to the uh, children because, you know, Max, we had called a couple of churches and we wanted to speak to their congregations and about divesting their money from these banks doing uh, business in private prisons, and they told us no. So it's always encouraging to find an open door and an open mind when we're talking about abolitionists. So uh, thank you, Julia, for, for sharing that report with us tonight. And, you know, I just want to say uh, um, it's going to take us working. It's not going to take all of us. It's just going to take those dedicated individuals with the willpower to end slavery. Every revolution did not have 100% participation. From some of my elders that I spoke to on these matters, they say it's usually about 5% of the population. The rest of the population is either apathetic or they're too afraid to get involved. So, but I do want to see as many people as possible meet up with us in Washington, D.C. for this historic Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March so we can announce to the world that slavery was never abolished and we seeking to end it. Indeed, Scotty. And I'll make mine brief. Uh, just saying, I re uh, repeat your words and thanks for Julia Dawson being here today. I try to surround myself with good people on the right side of history like that. You know, if you can't change the people around you, Maybe you need to change the people around you. And remember that abolition is the reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace.